Warning. This is a world of heroes and villains, of adventure and adversity, of love and death. The characters portrayed in these stories come from varied walks of life, not all of them healthy, and the journey ahead is dangerous. Sessions may include strong language, suggestive situations, alcohol or drug use, depictions of violence against anyone and everyone, speciesism, classism, social elitism, self-harm, slavery, and death of characters or NPCs. The world can be a dark place, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. If these things make you uncomfortable, you may want to consider alternative listening, but ultimately, only you can decide whether or not this is the show for you. If it isn't, you're under no obligation to say, we hope you find what you're looking for. If it is, then we hope you enjoy the show. And we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us this evening as we delve into the character of Riker Lattimore in Vanadia Origins by the light of the Cursed Moon. I am, of course, your narrator this evening, and we are joined by the man, the myth, the breakfast meat. Um, why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself? Um, well... Uh, the name's Raka, Raka Latimore. Uh, I'm a human, or I guess more commonly known as a werebore. You know, part man, part boar. Uh, let's see. Arcane Knight. That's, uh, that's what I do for a living, or at least now. Um, used to be a, a gladiator. Did a whole bunch of other stuff, like, um, Gladiating, I guess that's the same thing. Um, now I just, you know, help around at the Mage Academy and have kind of thrown my lot in with a, a random band of misfits that seem to have their goals at least somewhat aligning with mine. In the case that uh, I want to bring about a world where people like Trollkins and Wares, Vampires, the like, all of those are uh, considered equal and no one is above anyone else. And those that stand in my way can either, one, see that I am not a monster, or see how just a monster I can be. It is a, uh, a lofty goal to go for, with no doubt. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a good place to find yourself, to have a friends and a ruly band of misfits to, to travel about with, but it hasn't always been that way for you. Your no. life is a challenge. I mean, you would expect as much for anyone. There's a certain degree of insanity to be had for anybody who's decided to leave the comfort of a home and a steady job behind and to thrust themselves out into the wild in pursuit of adventurous gains and the like. Um, of course, it wasn't always that way for like for Riker. Riker had a, a fair amount of obstruction and challenge to be had for him. So, let's talk about that. Um, for Riker, um, only child, son of Loxon and Sylvia. Um, That's correct. An interesting life for you to grow up in, to travel, to find yourself out there, what you thought was normal to be traveling around with your parents all the time. 
Right. I mean, ever since I could remember, we were always on the... Well, now that I look at it back as an adult, or more of one, I should say, um, not quite there yet, at least some would say I'm childish, um, we were always on the run. Um, back then, I just thought, you know, they like to move around, stretch their legs. From a young age, I knew what lycanthropy was. Um, I helped my parents with their curse when when I was old enough, um, you know, from the age of like five, when I could, you know, work latches and things like that. My parents told me, hey, this time of the month, these are these cages, you latch mommy and daddy inside, and then you go to sleep and you leave it alone. That's a questionable and, thing to look at yourself as a young boy at the age of five and to to normalize that there's a period of three days every month, every season, where your parents have to be locked up in boxes for right. your safety and for any other safety. And then to go upstairs, to go to sleep, to ignore the sounds, the roaring, the rattling, the all of that. Um it's impressive to find that as a child so young you could normalize it, but at the same time it's somewhat disconcerting to think that that was the childhood you knew. I I, I don't think... Mm, normalize is, um, is, is a weird word for it, because um, it, it was never easy. Um, even before I helped them with stuff, it was never easy in the sense that uh, I still had to put up with it, right? Um, there was never such thing as a quiet night during those times of the month. And it's um, no fun um, hearing the snapping and crackling of bones as their bodies twisted into the monsters that they were or at least society saw them to be. Um, I seldom, rarely snuck a peek because they told me not to. They, that was one thing they always made very clear, not to see them when that happened. And I always tried to abide by the rules that they gave me because they were for my own good. And to tell you the truth, those two years that I helped them before that fateful day were the two young, longest years of my life. Um, I still I still dream about it. Um, it's part of the reason why I hate, or at least partially hate what I am, because I never want anyone to have the burden that I did as a child. To care for a lichen is not easy. Of course not. To uh, know that three days out of every, in the center of each season, um, you have to make sure that they're secured or they're at risk of taking lives or having their own lives taken. To be that young and to have to do that is a thing, but to have it come down the way it did, I imagine, wasn't easier. Seven years old, uh, in in the midst of travel, forced from your homes by unfortunate circumstance, dangerously close to the moon as you and your parents struggle to find somewhere new to hide. And then the hunters came. That night in the woods north of Lennox Glade when they chased your family in, caught you 
under the light of the full moon, seven years old, your father telling you and your mother to flee. Well, he threw himself at them, threw himself into the clash against their silver weapons and sent you and your mother running into the night, thinking that you had a chance to be free, not realizing until you heard that snap and that creak of braided cable when that cage snapped up and your mother was caught. When you were sitting there in the dark and you watched that change take her. And you could see that that regret in her face. That you watched what she became under the light of the moon. Your father roaring like a beast in the distance. Your mother struggling to free herself from the confines of that hunter's cage. And you, seven years old, trying so desperately to get her out of that must have been there aren't words for that no what child could process that kind of event i i don't think any could even one with my background of you know dealing with heavy subject from a young age um witnessing it was uh, for starters i'd never seen them turn um or at least not fully and caught maybe a glimpse or two, but never the full thing happening in front of me. And let me tell you, if it was hard to sleep with the noises of them transforming from inside the house, it sounds completely different when you are right next to it. I can imagine. What did you do when that happened, when your mom started to buckle in that cage? I... Uh, at first, I... I thought it was like our cage. I went to look for the latch. There were locks. It was different. Um, <laughs> I think I tried to grab a rock and smash it at one point, but to no avail. Um, and then I remember telling mom, I'm sorry. Because my little kid head got the idea that if I wasn't there, it would be easier for them to run away. They wouldn't have had to fight for anything. They could have just kept running. It is natural for children, I think, to assume that they, they understand on some level their reliance on their parents. And I can, I can imagine that it at some point feels natural to them to think that perhaps they're at fault. That hunter's cage different from the one you were accustomed to imposing but nowhere near as strong as the ones in your parents basement because as your mother threw herself against those reinforced slats they gave she came through there and it was her tusk that caught you and it was your blood on the ground when she came through that moment in her eye when she realized what she'd done. I um, I know a lot of people say that lichens lose control and that we aren't really all there when it happens. Um, those were her eyes. Those were not the monsters. She knew. Of course. I knew. I could see it. She wasn't looking at me like a meal. I was her son. 
in that moment, and she knew I was. There was no fog, there was no haze. She knew what she had done, and no parent, no parent ailed by the curse that mine were would ever want to impose it on their child. Of course. Uh, and yet there I was, you know, cursed to be a lichen now. Uh, Imagine and at first terrified that you were bleeding out on the forest floor. Com- completely. Um, I went into shock immediately. Um, and then shortly after, my body just, you know, kept repairing itself. Of course. The change itself is not swift, but the healing is. It, it needs to keep you alive. The curse has to keep you alive so that you can change. It, so it's that almost, you can propagate. Right. It, it's almost like the curse is a, an infection inside of you, like a, like a bug. And it wants to live just as much as you do. And it can only live with you. So it keeps you alive so that it can stay alive. It doesn't really care about you more so the vessel that you are sometimes. You're an object used in its natural process of reproduction. Exactly. And there you were on the floor of that forest in the damp leaves at night, wet with your own gore, and she knew what she had done. And the last thing she could do for you was to make sure that they never found you. So when those hunters came, she charged through their ranks and drew them deeper into the woods away from you. Yeah, the, last thing I, the last thing I saw was Mum uh, charging into the, in, into the forest with the rest of the hunters, you know, knocking them to the side, um, not once looking back, not after she broke eye contact. She just kept going. And part of me prayed, even if, they, if, if it would give them uh, an idea of where I was, that she would look back at me one last time. Um, but she didn't. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure, I, I'm, if I remember correctly, I wet myself. <laughs> I don't think anybody could blame you, all things considered. Um, an upfront brush with mortality is enough to liquefy the spines of strong and fully grown men, let alone a seven-year-old boy. But when that sun rose, you were alive. She was gone. You were alive. A right. difficult thing, you know. Do you do you still think that your mother's out there? I'd like to think so. I think I think she is. I I really do. It it's what keeps me going every day. Um. Well, that and a few other things, but for the most part, knowing that there's a chance that this world that I dream about bringing forth, or at least being a part of the creation of, is a world that I could maybe someday share with my mom, is, uh, is important to me. That's understandable. How, how much of the next seven years of your life were driven by that, that need to find your mother as you Almost. drifted to Potter to Farvale, as you as you made your way around the continental region of Southern Scotty to different towns, stealing food, living on the streets. How much of that was motivated by the hope that you'd find your mother? How much did that keep you going? Almost every day. Uh, the only times I don't think it was, at least in the front part of my brain, was when I was the beast. 
Uh, I think every time I went to steal something, every time I went to take a risk that I knew if my parents were there would say, this is too risky or you shouldn't do it or be careful. Every time I would hear her voice, the reprimands, the, the, Hey, think before you do. She was, my father was stern and he was very well attached to the reality that the world is cruel. But my mother, she, despite, despite everything, she tried to see the bright side of life and she, I could see it every time back then when I was a boy. Um, she didn't like to change. My dad kind of accepted it and it was whatever. I mean, you never really get used to it, but she despised what she was. That's so, so every day I fought for the hope of finding a world where she wasn't seen as a monster because she wasn't. And if I could maybe bring that to pass and have her see it, that was all I needed to keep going. Seven years of making your way across the land to different towns, finding food where you could, stealing where you had to. It's not an easy life for anyone. There are victims of the Demon King's Wars who are orphans who've lost their families and they live that life and I'm sure it I'm sure nobody wants to ever be there to go through that your parents had worked out a system they knew how to track the time to make sure that where they were they were safe not themselves so much as that they were safe that they weren't going to hurt anyone but right. for you you didn't have that luxury you didn't have the money aside to find yourself a place to hide. You didn't have the luxury of cages to contain the beast when it broke free. What was it like for you the first time it changed? When you were in the marshes south of Farvale, nothing but withered, mostly bare trees. When that first clutch of the beast came on you when you felt yourself start to buckle and the reality that you had become what your parents had been settled in it was it was strange because it was like two feelings at once it was one um an out of left field anger for everything around me just like even sentient non-sentient i just hated everything instantly like waking up without your coffee but like on steroids and then and then the second was like, have you ever stared down a dark tunnel, like a, like a cave tunnel or a stone tunnel? Sure. And then imagining a silhouette of yourself or another version of yourself at the end of the tunnel and then just being pulled back. And then seeing that silhouette walk away and know that that's you, but it's not you. And the you that you are is just being pulled deeper into an abyss until you don't remember anything. A loss of agency a terrifying thing for anybody i'm sure especially for a child to find that you'd lost yourself for three days to become this thing that destroyed whatever it could even as a child you were a force to be reckoned with you tore through merchant wagons when they were unfortunate enough to cross your path the guards struggled to drive you away and 
hopefully you never had to take a life. I mean, I, I can't know for certain if I killed anyone or not. Um, I, I, th- I might have. I'm probably sure I did. Um, it's nothing I ever wanted. I always tried to live by my parents' rule of don't hurt anyone. Of it's course. not so much about you surviving, but making sure that no one else inherits the curse and no one else dies. And I tried. I really did. Um, of course you did. Nobody does w- that. I was able to get pretty close, like ballpark, never like exact days. Um, but, uh, and it varies from season to season, so it was hard. But I always tried to put myself in a position where I could run. I could get away quick enough to maybe, you know, rampage in a forest rather than in a town. Of course. That you were so dedicated to that says a lot about the values your parents instilled in you and how strongly you were attached to them. It it says a lot to the goodness at the core of who you are. So many people who... And contract lycanthropy in its forms just accept the fact that murder is what they do now and it is the life they have that you fought it as hard as you did is a good sign and probably the hardest part for that was losing the ability to run when you were 14 when the beast took you in the swamps there south of Farvale, you the last thing you expected, I think, was to wake up in a cage. Something that should have been comforting, perhaps, or at least help you feel secure that you hadn't hurt anyone, but it wasn't the cages like your parents had. The, The room was dark. The air was thick with that cloying saccharine sweetness that is decay and blood and you could hear the sounds of people around you in the din other people in cages humans and others like that and that was how you found out that you'd been enlisted or acquired as Abling called it you'd become part of the Cocabra Fighting Guild in Lennox Glade. Uh, You were young, so you didn't have to go in as often as the others did. You watched them go up into the ring and fight, and watched men challenged with weapons to kill each other just for the sake of survival. And as a young boy, you watched. And it wasn't until the change would be on you when they would put you out there, when they would shackle those great silver bands on your tusks to keep you from infecting somebody. And they'd wheel you out under the light of the moon and cut you loose in the arena against whatever poor bastard pulled that lot. You struggled for years not to take another life, but then when you were there, when the beast became an implement for the amusement of the Cocabra Guild. You killed again and again and again for Abling and for the wealthy people who paid to watch 
a 14-year-old boy turn into a thousand pounds of murderous intent. You spent six years in the Cocabra Guild. First, just a boy only cut loose when the beast was on you, but after that, when you you grew strong, when you were angry, and they learned that they could harness you then, they started putting you out every day with the rest of them. And you'd have to go up, and you would have to fight, and you would have to kill to survive. And then they discovered that you wouldn't die when they thought they could kill you. The beast would come out then and they could bring it out whenever they wanted. All they had to do was let you get your ass handed to you hard enough. And you'd turn into that thing they wanted to watch. There were... One time I remember partially because of the way they did it. Um, for starters, you never get used to that. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, you can desensitize yourself to the violence, to the murdering, to the killing, to the cheers and the roars of the crowd. Um, that you can be numb to, and for the most part, I am. Um, but one thing I never got used to was waking up the next day or after a transformation, not feeling hungry and knowing what I did. Because whenever I wasn't hungry and I woke up, I knew what I did. Um, but as for that particular moment, um, like you mentioned, when they could get me to the brink of death, the beast protects itself. And one time, several times probably, but this is what I remember vividly, is they put me up against a, another gladiator um, while I was still you know, a teen in, in normal human form. And they let him kick the crack, crap out of me. And right when the crowd thinks that this man is about to kill this boy, a beast just manifests from the child and tears the man to shreds. And from that day forward, people just kept coming and coming to see the beast boy who would just destroy man after man after man. If a child born of violence like that, you know, could do that to men who have trained their entire lives to be gladiators and fighters or are given natural strength thanks to being trokin or, or whatever, and this child was just destroying them one after the other, what can't the lichens do? And, and by the same token, who can stop them? You know, the, that's where the fear comes from. We are, there are few races in this world that can really go toe-to-toe -to -toe with us. Even at a young age, a child of 14 can make even the strongest of grown men cower in fear. Indeed. The greatest, most defining moment of all that at your time in the Kokogbur Guild had to be the day that you escaped unintentionally full on in the beast rampaging in the ring shackled in your collar jerking at the chains swatting at fully armed and armored men and then suddenly there's that crack 
that telltale tinkle of metal as the bonds, as the lock on that chain gave way. And that beast became free. And you sprung yourself from that place. You threw yourself at the wall of the arena itself, digging your fingers into cracks, using your tusks to lever your way up until you were in the crowd and those people who'd come here to smile and watch you murder or you be tortured instead fled for their lives as you clamored out, assuming that you'd come to kill them just as you'd done to others. But no, you clamored your way up. You climbed the back of that stone stairway. You threw yourself through the halls and you vanished into the night. You were free in an instant. After six years of suffering, six years of torment at the hands of Abelin Kukabra and the gladiators of the guild, you were free. And I'd like to take you back to a moment here where right. you had just broken your way through and vanished into the night as a beast running beyond hunger or fear or anything, just desperate to get away of what you had and you vanished into the night. And when consciousness finds you in that morning on the banks of the river, your tattered clothes, thick river mud, you wake up to the sun overhead blinding in your eyes 20 year old Riker confused and mostly disrobed on the side of a river caked in mud and grime what your what rags you're clinging to stretched and distended from the beast thoughtfully alone but not because as your eyes focused there's a visitor there with you you wake up to the eyes of a stranger, a beautiful woman, long white hair, traveler's clothes that fit her form dangerously well. Human in appearance, but something in her eyes different. So you've awoken, Riker, on that river after that night. And the woman there tosses a bundle to you. Shirt, pair of pants, and some shoes. Too large for you, but better than nothing. And a, a bread roll and a piece of meat from God knows where. But it's meat and it wasn't a man. What did you do? What do you do? Thank you. So, wait, why? Would you have rather I left you in the guild? The woman takes a couple of steps towards you and she crouches down a little bit so she's closer to you, more on your level. She says, if you'd rather, I could have not broken the bonds and left you in there, but I didn't figure that was where you wanted to be. You 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 broke the chains. A simple ice spell, nothing nothing complicated. And and then if if that's the case, um how did you know I wouldn't hurt the people? I didn't. 
I figured if anyone died while you trampled them underfoot, it would serve them. I, uh... I am not known for my bleeding heart. Put the clothes on. You're barely containing yourself. So sorry. she gets up and she turns her. She turns away from you to give you some modesty as you uh, put the garments on. They're not tailored well to you, but they they fit and they cover. So I'm. Why me? Must there be a reason? I, I guess not. Maybe, maybe... I saw you, an animal, in the ring, shackled and chained, and you never killed as a first resort. Even as a beast, you fought to spare. It wasn't a realism. It was childish... 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 Um, naivete. That you would make it out of there without killing everything that tried to kill you. But yet it was there. There is a spark of will in you. And I suppose that, all things considered, I was curious. Oh, that's how I've always done it. Um, Keep out of harm's way, but more importantly, keep others out of harm's way. That's what mum and dad always said. And where are your mum and dad? Um, Well, one's got a silver laid through his gut somewhere in a forest, probably in a museum. And the other, I don't know. The woman turns to you and she appraises you for a moment. Um, As she adjusts the length of hair, you can see the elvish ears long and pointed to the back as she tucks her hair back around it to conceal the point. She says... Supposing I were to take you somewhere where you could learn to be more than what you have been. More than a monster. More than what they see me. Will you let that fear you? Will you let that be what drives you? The fear that you're going to be a monster to strangers? I I thought you had... I thought you were sterner than that. I thought that you wanted to be more than the beast of the tusk, the bloody boar, the treader of men, the moon-howling mauler. Those aren't my names. What is your they're name, what, boy? They're what, they're what they call me, but those aren't my names. My name is Riker Latimore. And if you're going to use one, it's Shatter Tusk. That's the only one, because that's all I wish for, is that these tusks be shattered and destroyed and never come back. Because I don't want to be the monster. I want to show the world that me and my kind, we're not that. Yes, the three days, four days out of every season, we can't control ourselves. But that doesn't mean that for the other, you know, God knows how, or God's know how many days of the seasons, we aren't just like you and me are right now. Somewhat civilized. She regards you. For a long minute. Before she tosses you a backpack. When it lands you hear the clatter of a wine bottle inside. And the rustle of food. She says. Well then. Riker. Pick up the bag. We have a long journey ahead of us. 
All right. The woman's name was Danan, headmistress Danan, of the Magician's Academy in Shadowdale. And it was a long, long hike for you there. Three months overland from Lennox Glade to the Healing Hand Sanctuary, a month of which spent traversing the rocky cliffs of the Dragonspine Mountains. But when you reached the Healing Hand Sanctuary, you boarded a boat, and you hit, you put to sea. The beast was on you for the cursed moon every season it could. But she kept you bound. Every time the moon would come and you would start to buckle, she would bind you in mystic chains and muffle you, and you would writhe and fight and try your damnedest to break and to rage, but she never left your side. She sat there with you through the night in your chains, and in the morning she gave you food. She she was never warm like your mother was, but she had compassion in her own way. And when she took you to Shadowdale, she marched you up to the Magician's Academy. She put you to work. You did janitorial work. You did maintenance work. You provided whatever menial labors were needed, but she made sure that your education was finished. The the basics, math and reading that you had begun as a child constantly on the run, she made sure were finished. She made sure that you were literate. You could do your work and that you were just as smart, if not smarter, than any other man your age. And then when you were there, she came to you and she said, So, You're smart enough now that I can't keep you on fixing janitorial spots. I can't keep you on mending windows and moving hay for the horses. If you're going to want to stay here, Mr. Latimer, you're going to have to pick a trade. She offered you three choices. You could be a magician and learn and excel at offensive magic. You could be a healer. You could learn to invest your energy into undoing the injuries that people received. Or you could take up a blade and you could be an arcane knight. You could clad yourself in armor, pick up your sword and spell, and you could be a fist and a sword for what you believed in. So, 22 years old, what did what did 22-year-old Riker decide was going to be his path at that moment? Um, Miss, I think, um, well, I like all three. Um, fixing the wounds that I caused on people seems fun, or good, at least. It's what a not, what not a monster would do. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe if I used armor and a blade uh, to cover up the thing that I am inside, that you know, put on a pretty, you know, suit of armor, and people will think I'm more welcoming than what I am. 
even if I still reek of last night's dinner. And that was what led you to the path of the Arcane Knight. <laughs> or was it um, Karen Alcott that led you to the path of the Arcane Knight? You really know how to push buttons, don't you, narrator? Now that was a woman. Is a woman. How did it feel when you walked up there in that to be an arcane knight and you found out your instructor was a four and a half foot tall, 90 pound, demure little cat girl with pale orange hair the color of sunrise. And when you looked at her and you smiled and she pulled that giant sword off the wall and she put your ass through the ringer to show you that tiny little Karen Alcott was not a shrinking violet. I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, at first, when I walk in this door, you know, young buck me, um, thinking, you know, I'm going to be an arcane knight on top of the world, everything. Um, and I see, you know, this small, adorable, like absolutely adorable well, little lady, you know, little lady cat. Um, I'm like, this can't be right. I'm in the wrong classroom. You know, maybe, maybe you know, the the headmistress misheard me and put me in healer class or something. Um, and then she pulls out the sword and I'm like, all right, she can hold the sword, but there's no way she's going to be stronger than the guys back at the gladiator ring. I'm going to put her on her ass and I'll, they'll give me my, you know, whatever and i'll be on my way and arcane knight will have this done in three days easy peasy always the cocky one um it's, it's, but let me tell you oh she humbled me so hard and so quickly uh every time that she would put me down i'd be like it's a fluke i want a rematch it's a fluke over and over and over again um and and every time you know without fail she could put me on my arse every time Karen was good at that. She knew she was small. Knew that she would elicit that kind of response from people. So she was always eager to show that she could fight just as hard, if not harder, than her six foot six, fully clad in armor students. Big, burly men with heavy weapons and spells who thought that she was eye candy. Just a pretty little creature. Exactly. Um, she had such a control on every part of her body that it, her size didn't matter. She used your size against you. Uh, she could maneuver in ways that tall people, like myself, not that I'm the tallest thing out there, um, could, you know, could not answer to. You had no answer to her in battle. But that that's not... It's not everything she was. So was it the ass-kicking or the adorableness is why she was your first thing? Was it, what was it that made, your, that made your, your heart flutter when she was in the room? Uh, it was, I think it was a mix of a whole bunch of things. The fact that she was strong, could hold her own in battle... Because when you come from a background of mine, if you can't hold your own, you die. And there's no point in falling for something that's going to die. Um, but that was kind of the thing. She had this 
persona about her that she worked harder than everyone else in the room because she had to, because she knew she had to, because it was the only way to be seen. And much like me, she wanted to be seen not for what she was, but what, for what she does. And just the fact that my ideals and hers aligned in that way, I mean, how do you not fall in love? I mean, there's, there's someone who shares, you know, your hopes and dreams of a world that racism doesn't exist in, um, can fight well, which is every, you know, every gladiator's dream girl right there. It's basically just an attractive woman with a sword. Um, I can tell you that much every time. Um, but then she was also adorable. It's like, it's like I could walk down the street with this girl under my arm and people would be none the wiser that if they pissed her off, I wouldn't be the one they would be answering to. They'd be answering to her. <laughs> she always appreciated the fact that you respected her. That was a challenge for a lot of people because not only was she a tiny woman, but also the fact that she was a lesser fell pool, a slave race, that in any other town that she was walking through, people would just as likely think that she was some noble's housemaiden sent to do the grocery shopping. Or, depending on the size of the city, somebody who had to earn her keep as a lady of the evening because she wasn't entitled to the education and the freedoms that others got. It was... It bothered me a lot that a lot of the other students didn't treat her with respect until they really learned what she was like. Um, and the townsfolk of Shadowdale were no exception to that rule. Um, I mean, some of them were all right, and some of them kind of knew her deal, but she was always very adamant that... Uh, that uh, she make it clear that nothing gets in the way of her image, of her upholding the standard that she's a Bladeswoman first, a Felpool second, kind of. Not even the uh, the sweet young boy with a big crush and a sharp sword. That, uh, despite the fact that the pair of you had a bond... Not even that could could get in the way. So as much as you liked her, and as much as it seemed like she liked you, there wasn't a way that you were going to be able to be that man with her on your arm. She had to. She had to be a teacher. She had to be isolated in her position, uh, or in her authority. Right. And I'm sure that probably contributed in the end to what led to you leading Shadowdale once your training was complete. I mean, you know, you you had a comfortable space there. You enjoyed uh, the blacksmith work of Gar Stoneskin, the Trollkin blacksmith in town who made exceptional weapons. Uh, Sultana Nika Shadel, um, um a noble... A human noble, for all intents and purposes, but who treated all of you like equals. Uh, the people of the Adventurers Guild, who, from different walks in different places, 
never held it against you that you were a lycanthrope. Never held it against her that she was a lesser fellpool. You had found a comfortable niche there. It was um, it was very hard to leave. It was very difficult for me to go because um, it was a place where where Karin and and myself and the others we could we could be what we were and no one really cared because everyone was different in Shadowdale. Everyone came from you know a different walk of life. The the academy really fostered a variety of of races and species um it's it's how i know so much about so many um you know not just the books but interacting with them and living everyday life with them and and knowing what they're like and and seeing that and yes it it was part of the reason you know her not being able to be with me was part of the reason that i left but um me leaving was also kind of my last at least in-person sign of respect to her in the sense that I knew that I couldn't be with her and also enable her to do what she needed to do. If, even if we both wanted to be together, which there was talks that there was like, we, there was a time where I'd even planned that we would run away and we would leave Shadowdale and we would just do things on our own, similar to the way my parents did it. But she kind of pulled me back from that. She was like, but do you really want the reality for us to be always on the run? You know, like one of us has to do something. Basically, we'd always talked about changing the world and making it better. And one of us has to do something. And she was like, well, because I'm stuck here teaching, it has to be you. Right. And so as my kind of last in-person, you know, <laughs> this one's for you, Karen. Um, I set out for adventure, you know. I I said good my goodbyes to everyone, the blacksmith, Karin, the Academy, the Adventures Guild, everyone. Um and we were off and it saddens me. I hope to see them again. Um I, I really do. Um because I think the people that I'm with now would love them. I I think they would see Shadowdale as a small portion of what the world could be. Now, the headmistress is, you know, she will always be cold. She will always be the way that she is, or at least that's my assumption because of the way that she's been. But um, she made not having a mum easy, or at least easier. So leaving all of them wasn't easy. Um, it's something I needed to do for myself and for those around me um, and for the world, if we're, if we're looking at what I intend to do, um, hopefully before I die. Um, I mean, if that's even possible anymore. Um. Well, and you've you've made a good start for yourself. You went from being a child running away with your parents to being a child forced to grapple with something so much bigger than yourself to having your agency taken from you and becoming weaponized, a weaponized creature of immaturity and anger and destructive tendency to finally being able to rein yourself in to become a contained, self-controlled agent, to to being able to pursue your own interests and your own wants in the world. And um, so you've gone forth, you've reached out into the world and said, I'm here to make my place, to, to leave my footprint in it. And um, you've 
found yourself in the company of a rather questionable lot of odds and ends. Uh, uh, a one-handed monk, uh, a, uh, a chroma who's apparently got issues with self-destruction, um, a great sad green boy, a small fluffy sad boy, and and now there's a, a, a fair maiden of long white hair and great wingspan who made you flutter just just a little, just a little on your bit. first blush. So Of course, we never tell Karen this, Mr. Narrator. Never. Um, Mom's the word. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so but, how do you feel yeah. about all that, about your journey to this point and what comes next? How, how are you feeling about all this? Not going to lie. First day on the ship where, you know, and then the commotions happen. I was like, everyone thinks I'm a fucking grump and no one wants to talk to me on this boat. Like, it's not my fault that I just look upset all the time. It's not really that I don't want to talk to people. It's just people like, my eyes really give off a vibe. And it makes it hard to be like a, hey, guys, kind of a person. Um, so uh, I was like, all right, when, when the food comes around, I'll invite someone to talk and uh, or talk or sit down or whatever. And then the little freaking raccoon thing like tugs on my coat or whatever my 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 cloak and is like you know can you can you hurry it up can you move move along and i'm like you know what you know i have bad and then we go and sit down and the fucker starts to shove his face full of bacon and i'm like you fucker <laughs> um the the little shit like how would you like it if I roasted you over an open fire and just munched on tanuki, huh? You you wouldn't think that was great. No, you would think I was a monster. Well, I kind of am, but neither and here nor there though. And and then one after the other, you know, the choking came by, then the and the monk uh, didn't meet the chroma till later. Um, she probably isn't the brightest bulb in the in the batch, considering she tried to execute an entire ship of, you know, metal. Yes. Um that that is definitely not not one of uh one of one's more sterling moments to be sure. And as and as far as like third impressions go, getting naked in front of people probably not the best way to do it. In hindsight, there was a better way to handle that situation, but I'm glad that it turned out with none of us dying. I'm glad the ship was able to make it to Maradini easily enough. Um, and as far as the the winged beauty, well, I mean, she's easy on the eyes. And I've always been a bit of a chivalrous fellow, kind of arcane knight, comes with the trade. We learn a whole code of conduct kind of thing, even though we were masters of the blade and, and of some spells and everything, um, you know, we hold ourselves to a standard. We're still in our heads, knights, whether or not we have an official title. It's in our, you know, it's in the name of what we are. Uh, so always keep myself to a standard of protecting a fair maidens. The reason I don't act that way with Sersha and with Amaria is, well, one of them can literally punch me into next week and the other wanted to fucking sell my fur so, no, they don't get that same courtesy. But when you walk into my room bringing me a sack of money and looking that damn amazing that early in the day, of course my name is Rakalatamor and I'm at your service. Of course, of course. Well, I think we have an excellent picture of you and I'd like to thank you 
Riker Lattimore, uh, strong, upright, arcane knight of the Magician's Academy for uh, being here, for sharing your story and a little bit of who you are with everybody here. And um, I, I think I speak for everybody when I say that I hope that you don't trample gore and or murder everybody on Saturday. I sure hope so. You know, we're talking in my self-subconscious right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's it for us. I think we're good tonight. So um, thanks for coming, Internet. Glad you came thanks, to join everyone. us. We'll see you all this weekend when um, all hell breaks loose. And I killed the party. Maybe. Maybe. Good night, everybody. Good night.